You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 39. Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of The Raven and the Writing Desk. If you're new to this show, greetings. I'm your host, Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City story universe. You can find more of my work at chrislaster.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my new fiction with you, fresh off the writing desk. But first, let me take a minute to fill you in on my personal life. It's time for a job hunt update. Yeah, I did a job. I got nothing but trouble since I did it, not to mention more than a few unkind words as regard to my character, so let me make this abundantly clear. I do the job. And then I get paid. This week, I flew out to Madison, Wisconsin, to interview with a contract research organization. I talked to two group leaders and a manager, and I feel like all of the conversations went really well. This really feels like an organization I could be happy working for, and people I could enjoy working with. My recruiter says that my application is currently in review, so hopefully I'll hear some good news later this week. While I'm working on getting back into the ranks of the gainfully employed, my partner Mel and I have been very grateful for the generosity of my Patreon patrons. We're now up to almost 100 patrons, maybe more by the time you hear this, and your support is keeping the lights on and our animals fed while we both search for new jobs. If you're already a patron of the show, thank you so much. If you haven't made a pledge yet, please go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester and take a look at our reward levels. You can get bonus stories, author commentaries, story previews, bonus artwork, and other cool stuff, including advanced copies of the ebooks I release. You can adjust or cancel your pledge at any time, but we would be especially grateful for your support for the next few months, until Mel and I find our feet again. That's patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. Today I'm bringing you the second half of Chapter 8 in my Metamore City novel, Things Unseen. This story began airing in episode 24, so if you're hearing this show for the first time, go back and catch up before continuing with this episode. The following recap will contain spoilers. Metamore City Police Detective Catherine Catane has been searching for a missing person, the infamous heiress and socialite Mysteria Halloway. Misty's father, Count Xavier Halloway, is the Imperial Minister of Intelligence, and he's used his considerable power to force Kate and her partner David to locate his vanished daughter. After investigating a number of leads, Kate received a message from Misty herself, who requested a meeting in private at the Church of Hedonism. Kate went to the temple, met Misty's incubus half-brother, John, and then spoke with Misty herself, who had been transformed into a scaly red demoness. Misty explained that she and several of her friends had traveled to the Telvari Rift Zone, where they were exposed to a mana surge that mutated their bodies in a variety of ways. Kate agreed to craft illusion charms for Misty and her friends, so they can stop hiding and get back to their normal lives. Misty promised to return to Count Halloway and play the quiet, obedient daughter, though she deeply resented giving up her position as an evangelist for the Church of Hedonism. Before leaving the temple, Kate had a brief and sexually charged encounter with John, where she just barely resisted the urge to surrender to his advances. By the time she returned home to her apartment building, she was feeling tired, anxious, and despondent about the state of her city. 
she ran into her landlady, the matronly succubus, Miss Fallon, who quickly saw that Kate was out of sorts. Miss Fallon ushered Kate into her private chambers, where she convinced her to shower and then relax in Miss Fallon's spa. The succubus gently massaged Kate's aching muscles, making her more and more relaxed, while Kate's mind entered a state that was peaceful, dreamlike, and fuzzy. At last, Miss Fallon leaned over and kissed Kate's forehead, and the world went away under a blanket of soft, downy white. Things Unseen A novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 8 Continued Saturday, April 7th, 2000 Christos Reckoning When Kate awoke, the white nothingness resolved itself into white sheets, white pillows, and a thick white down comforter. Since Kate didn't own any white linens, that told her that she wasn't in her own bed, but somehow that fact didn't seem important. She felt relaxed, pleasantly numb, as if all the tension and pent-up frustrations of the last week had just been drained out of her. She wanted to snuggle into the covers and soak up the feeling for as long as it would last. Gods, this is nice. I haven't felt like this in ages. Not since the last time I... Hey, wait a minute. Her brain seemed to be working at quarter speed, but she gradually became aware that she was not alone in the bed. She turned over and saw Miss Fallon watching her, with one elbow propped on her pillow. The sheets covered most of her body, but what Kate could see of her was still naked. Miss Fallon smiled, her expression radiant. Good morning, sweetling. Feeling better? Kate stared, feeling a blush start in her cheeks and creep down to... someplace much lower. She fought to think through the fuzzy, numb sensation, to rally her usually infallible memory to tell her what on earth was going on. Miss Fallon, she said slowly, did we just... Miss Fallon laughed, a bright, rich sound. <laughs> no, Kate. Rest assured, I've not forgotten your sexual preferences. Kate let out a breath she hadn't realized she was holding. Oh, good. Um, the last thing I remember was you giving me a massage. She frowned. And you... kissed me, I think? On the forehead? The succubus nodded once. Your aura was badly congested. You'd soaked up a lot of essence from somewhere, and it didn't have an outlet. That's why you were so agitated. Essence. Memories of the hedonist temple came back to her. What kind of essence? Daedric, fortunately. Otherwise I wouldn't have been able to drain it out of you. Well, she amended, I could have, but it would have been far less pleasant for me if it were celestial essence. That son of a bitch, Kate growled. He dosed me. Who did? The priest at the hedonist temple. John, he called himself. He said he was Misty Halloway's half-brother. Ah, yes, that John, Miss Fallon said. Let me guess. He offered to entertain you, and you refused. Yes, Kate said, bawling her fists. 
Gods, no wonder I couldn't think straight around him. He was fucking with my aura. In fairness, I doubt it was intentional, Miss Fallon said. When an incubus uses his power to make a suggestion, the effect is much more precise. Kate sat up, drawing the sheet around her torso. How so? Infernal magic isn't really my specialty. Miss Fallon slid out of the bed and walked over to her dresser. Kate's clothes sat there, cleaned and neatly folded. The principles aren't that different from mortal magic, she said, as she picked up the clothes and handed them over to Kate. Think of a suggestion as a small, detailed painting on specific parts of your aura. What you had was more akin to the marks you'd get on your clothes if you sat on a freshly painted bench. Your body absorbed it, but the essence had no message to convey, just a fragment of John's current state of mind. Judging from its effects on you, I'd say John was feeling a mixture of sexual desire, worry, and frustration. Perhaps he has something weighing on his mind. His sister, probably. Kate put on her bra and fastened it, then pulled on her panties. Huh. What would cause something like that? I've never heard of people just soaking up an outsider's essence. It isn't common, Miss Fallon said, but some mortals have the blood for it. We've been living among your people for a long time, and the gods themselves have had their share of dalliances. I suspect that you'll find a few outsiders in your family tree, if you dig deeply enough. Huh, Kate said again. She filed that tidbit away for later investigation. She'd never considered the possibility that some part of her might not be fully human. In any case, it's gone now, Miss Fallon said. Once you were in a properly receptive mood, your aura opened up, and I was able to drain off the essence. Kate raised her eyebrows. You mean you fed on me? Miss Fallon shrugged, unabashed. Yes, and it made you feel better, didn't it? Kate gave her a glare, but it didn't have any real heat to it. You might have told me what you were planning to do. The succubus put her hands on her hips. If I had, he would have thought I was trying to seduce you. Even if I'd told you exactly what I intended, you'd have been worried enough that I would never have gotten you into the right frame of mind. Humph, <laughs> Kate said, which was her usual way of admitting that she'd lost an argument. Miss Fallon grinned, then strode over to her closet and began looking for something to wear. Kate watched the elegant, easy movements of her body, the way she was utterly at home in her own skin. Women did nothing for Kate on a sexual level, but watching Miss Fallon was like seeing art in motion. Kate stood and pulled on her racing suit, while Miss Fallon put on a beautiful gold blouse, a long blue skirt with pink and gold floral patterns, and a blue and gold silk overgarment that was halfway between a wrap and a cape. A dupata, she had once called it. Kate suppressed a sigh. I am never going to look that glamorous, she thought. Not even with an actual glamour. Thank you for everything, Miss Fallon, Kate said, as the succubus sat down in front of her dresser to begin working on her hair and makeup. I may not have been able to admit it earlier, but I really needed that. You're very welcome, my dear, Miss Fallon said. Oh, and before I forget, I was able to take a look at that autopsy report for you. Kate perked up. Yeah? What did you think? Very strange, Miss Fallon said, frowning slightly. You remember the incident with... Braylon? Yeah, Kate said, subdued. On the night of the winter solstice, Miss Fallon had taken in a wounded outsider a warrior celestial called the Deva. 
Braylon was only a child, and Ms. Fallon attempted to restore her to health by feeding her own essence to the girl. The influx of Daedric energy had changed Braylon's essential nature, but not in the way Ms. Fallon had hoped. Instead of her essence making Braylon more docile around Ms. Fallon's people, the resulting blend of warrior and seductress had gone on a killing spree among the local Daedra population. She had lured them into sexual encounters and used her powers to steal their life force, leaving only... Wait a minute, Kate said, straightening. Holy shit! They said that Braylon's victims were left as burnt-out husks. One of the guys who found a body said it looked like a mummy. Yes, Miss Fallon said. It wasn't the same pattern, mind you. This business with the heart, for instance, that's completely different. But there are similarities, enough to persuade me that it was no mere spell that killed Mr. Travers. So, what are we dealing with here? Some kind of energy vampire? Perhaps, Miss Fallon said. But that implies external feeding, which I don't believe this is. Kate nodded thoughtfully. A parasite, then. Or a symbiont, Miss Fallon added. Something that tried to bond with him, but it went badly. I've heard of stranger things, Kate said. And the rift is definitely the place for weird. She came over and put a hand on Miss Fallon's shoulder. Thank you for the insight. I'll look into this. Miss Fallon pulled the autopsy report out of a drawer and handed it back to her. Good luck, and be careful. I will. Kate left Miss Fallon's suite and headed down to her own apartment, anxious to change into street clothes and tend to her rumbling stomach. She was mentally reviewing her available breakfast supplies when she noticed the scratch marks in the frame next to her door handle. They hadn't been there when she left the night before. Oh, hell... She pulled out her mobile phone and dialed the station. This is 942, she said when the dispatch officer answered. Code 6 Adam. I've got a 603 possible Berg at my apartment. I'm going inside. Stay with me and send backup if the line goes dead, or if you hear anything that sounds like trouble. Copy that, detective, the officer said. Be careful. People keep saying that to me lately, Kate murmured, mostly to herself. You'd almost think I had a reputation for being reckless. She drew her holdout pistol from the hidden pocket at her back, tucked the phone into a side pocket, then slowly unlocked the door. She listened, but heard no trace of movement on the other side. As quietly as possible, she turned the knob and pushed it slightly ajar. Again, she paused and listened. Then, gripping the pistol in both hands, she kicked the door open and rushed inside. She scanned the room in a second or two, saw no immediate threats, then made a second, more careful pass, taking in the surroundings and comparing them to her memory. Someone had searched her apartment, very carefully and thoroughly. At first glance, the average person wouldn't have been able to tell the difference. Kate's organizational systems ranged from haphazard to non-existent, and her apartment had a lot of clutter. She'd heard plenty of messy people use the excuse, but I know where everything is but in Kate's case, it was literally true. Or it had been, until someone had gone through it all, inspected it, and put it back again. No one without the benefit of Kate's eidetic memory could have hoped to put all her stuff back exactly the way they'd found it, and the hundreds of small mistakes they'd made jumped out at her like flashing neon. The question is, what were they looking for? She retrieved her full-sized sidearm from her shoulder holster, which sat close to where she'd left it, then checked her laboratory. 
Her reagents had been examined and replaced, but none were missing. That ruled out burglary as a motive, since her spell components were the most valuable things in the flat. The Nocturna's lily was still where she'd left it, more or less. Misty Halloway's file had been moved, though it was impossible to tell which parts of it the intruder had examined. The sheet of paper with the name-encrypted message had likewise been disturbed, and it looked like someone had crushed it in his hand and then tried to smooth it out again. Score one for modern cryptography, Kate thought smugly. Nothing looked out of place in the bathroom, though there was a smudge on the mirrored door of the medicine cabinet over the sink. Sadly, the snoop in question hadn't been dumb enough to leave any fingerprints behind. Lastly, she came to her bedroom, and there... Her gun tracked immediately to the man lying on her bed. Freeze! she shouted, going into a shooter's stance. For a long moment there was silence. Then a weak, wheezing chuckle came up from the bed. Freeze, the young man's voice said. He was lying on his side with his back to the door, so Kate couldn't see his face. That's good. That's funny. You think this is funny, asshole? Kate snarled. I have a ten millimeter pistol pointed at the back of your head. You try anything and we'll see how funny it is when your brains are painting the wall over there. Now get your hands where I can see them, nice and slowly. Obediently, the young man raised his hands into view. The skin was very pale and looked... blue. A very light powder blue. Even corpses didn't turn that color. Good. Kate said, setting aside that particular weirdness for the moment. Now slowly, turn to face me. He did, and Kate felt her eyes go wide. The young man was in bad shape. His face was ragged and hollow-eyed, like he'd gone far too long without food or sleep. A sparse, patchy beard covered his chin and parts of his cheeks. His eyes were solid black, like a lizard's, and his hair hung in long, matted tangles around his head. He looked like a rain addict going through withdrawal, and all of his skin was that same eerie powder-blue color. He shuddered, his face wrenched in pain, and the temperature of the room suddenly dropped about ten degrees. Despite the changes, Kate recognized him from the photo she'd seen yesterday. Oh my god! Hal Rains? Is that you? The young man took a deep, gasping breath, held it a moment, then nodded. Yes, detective, it's me. He opened those eyes again, fixing her with an inky black stare. Or, or what's left of me. Kate lowered her gun off to the side. What are you doing here? I had to warn you. Another gasp, and the temperature dropped a little lower. We're running out of time, detective. You have to stop them. Stop them before we're all dead. And that's the end of chapter eight. What's happened to Hal? Who does Kate need to stop? And who ransacked Kate's apartment? The mystery continues next week.
Toni Morrison said, If there is a book that you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. I've got something like a dozen of those, and somehow I keep finding more of them. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 5,635 words this week, over the course of 8.5 hours, for an average writing speed of 663 words per hour. As of Friday night, when I'm writing this script, I have gone 17 days without breaking my chain. The Lost in the Least is now up to the start of Chapter 19. The draft is up to 64,000 words and counting. One thing I'm enjoying in this story is the chance to weave in some of the deeper backstory of the Metamorph City universe, elements that were always in place behind the scenes, but now have the chance to come out of the shadows. I can't say much more than that without risking spoilers, but suffice it to say, this book is really going to shake up how people look at the events in the world of Metamorph City. In other news, the ebook version of Divine Intervention is available for pre-order on Smashwords and Amazon, with a release date of March 1st. I haven't gotten a chance to work on the paperback edition yet, so that's probably going to take me another month or two, but I hope to have it ready in time for Balticon. If you'd like to order signed paperback copies of Making the Cut, Things Unseen, or Urban Legends, these are now available for purchase through my Square storefront. Just go to squareup.com slash market slash liminal hyphen corvid hyphen press, and you can place your order directly with me. The link will be in the show notes. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorcityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester, and on Twitter as Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. To converse with your fellow Metamorphs, check out the Fans of Metamorph City Facebook group. The link will be in the show notes. That's all for this week. Tune in next time for more stories fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2013 and 2016 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.